0: welcome back everyone to the horror shed podcast i'm your co-host jared down here we have the infamous south jersey jason how are you doing tonight
1: man i'm doing good i think my computer's lagging because i feel like i'm watching a uh old uh martial arts movie from the 70s <laughs> <So>. <laughs> or uh reminds me of a uh, police academy with michael winslow you know hey that's my sensei <laughs> i'm doing good although like we were just talking earlier off screen happy first day of summer
0: yeah it's bullshit
1: yeah but it's gonna be cooling down next week
0: let's get this over with
1: uh okay so you know uh, while i still fresh in my mind last i think last podcast we were talking about um like true crime ish uh documentaries and whatnot and we talked about the waco when i was watching bar rescue i saw a commercial for a new show coming out on paramount plus called waco the aftermath and it has my one of my favorite actors, Michael Shannon and Giovanni Rabisi. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess it talks about the um I guess the investigations, the hearings and whatnot from the government standpoint. So it should be interesting. That's coming out, right? Uh tomorrow, the 14th. Yep. Oh, huh, that's I didn't hear anything about it. Me neither. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah so I mean anything with Michael uh, Shannon or Giovanni Ribisi, you already have me. They're both great actors.
0: They are. They kill it every time. Yeah. I mean, Do you watch anything new? I watched the Casey Anthony documentary on Peacock.
1: Did she admit to killing her kid? No. <laughs> I. How did they find her not guilty? Because I never really watched that trial. Like, all right,
0: here's what you need to do. Have you watched this yet? No. Nah. I want you to go into watching that. It's a good app ep- It's a good show. You should watch it.
1: Okay. But
0: I want you to go into it without knowing anything. Okay. Because I think a lot of it, because this was the first huge trial that social media had their play in, mm-hmm. so a lot of evidence presented makes sense. So I'm not going to say I'm a for her but her story makes a lot of sense. Okay. So if you ever get a chance to sit down and watch it, try and pretend that you never
1: heard of Casey Anthony and then go from there. Right. Right. You know, I was thinking, did I watch anything? And I know I watched something. I just can't remember what I watched. <laughs> no, I uh, horror wise.
0: Not much, not much out there right now. I've been a little bland.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, talk the news. Um, We got a bunch of Mia Goth news. Mia Goth. Mia Goth. She is like the hot woman of the horror genre right now, but I don't know if you heard this, but she is joining the MCU in the upcoming Blade reboot, whenever that's coming out. I think by the time it comes out, uh, Marsha Ali is going to be as old as uh, Morgan Freeman. Yeah. So, uh, So, yeah, she's on top of the world in the wake of the star making performance in X, Pearl, and Infinity Pool, which is on my list to watch. And Deadline reports tonight that Goth is now joining Marvel's Blade movie. No word yet on the character Goth will be sinking her teeth into. Marvel's Blade reboot is part of the latest phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And Oscar-winning actor Marsha Shala Ali is taking over the iconic vampire slaying role, which I think is a, um, a good fit for him. He's a good actor. So, the current tentative release date is September 6, 2024. Yan Deminch is directing. Deminch directed 71 and White Boy Rick, as well as the premiere of Lovecraft Country. Michael Starberry will be writing a new version of the screenplay. The vampire slaying character was written by writer Mary Wolfman and artist Gene. Jean- Colin introduced in July's 1973's *The Tomb of Dracula* number ten. Wesley Snipes played Blade across three films from 98 to 2004, and he was played by Sticky Fingers in a short-lived TV series, which was horrible. Was pretty bad. Blade was the the first. Blade was great. Like technically, like that saved Marvel because Marvel was on the brink of bankruptcy. I liked all three. I didn't care for the third one so much. I liked the Dracula
0: aspect. I thought yeah. it was cool that they brought out the head honcho. And I liked the dude that played Dracula, so I thought I it liked, was okay. I like
1: him, but I didn't like him in that role,
0: per se. Yeah. Um, it was the other groups that made that movie bad. Like, the other... Wasn't Triple
1: H in that? He was a vampire with a poodle. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was those characters that kind of ruined yeah. that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So continuing with the uh, Mia Goth, filming is underway on Ty West Maxine, Triple X Maxine, starring Mia Goth. Ty West completes his X trilogy with the upcoming Maxine, a sequel to last year's horror movies, X and Pearl, that will bring Mia Goth's title character into the 1980s. A24 has revealed that filming on Maxine is now underway. has a really good cast. Um, Elizabeth Debicki, Moses Sumney, Michelle Monaghan, Bobby Cavanaugh, which he's great. He was great in Boardwalk Empire. Lily Collins, Halsey, who I've been hearing this person, but I don't know who it is. Giancarlo Esposito, the best villain ever. And, you know, he wants to play Professor X in the new X-Men series, which I could get behind that. And Kevin Bacon. I feel like Kevin Bacon's going to be like, uh, I think I'm going to call it now. He's going to be like a shady porn director. That's going to be his role. Uh, Maxine uh, reverses the franchise trajectory through time to pick up with Maxine after the violent events of X as the sole survivor continues her journey towards fame, setting out to make it as an actress in 1980s Los Angeles. It's the best script of the three by far. It's going to be the best movie of the three. This is all um, stated by goth. It's the biggest story of the three with the highest stakes, and Maxine has gone through so much at this point. So when we find her in this new world, she's just a force to be reckoned with, and she goes through some pretty wild adventures. All right. This one I'm excited for. You're like, eh, ah, it's using that reboot, goth. Dylan's new nightmare. Miko Hughes returns in fan film sequel to a New Nightmare. The team behind Never Hike Alone Womstom Films is moving from the Friday the 13th to A Nightmare on Elm Street with Dylan's New Nightmare. A brand new fan film, Dylan's New Nightmare is an unofficial sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and you can also slice into the brand new trailer that was released, well, it would be, um, by the time this comes out, last Wednesday. Um, Directed by Cecile Laird of the Horror Show YouTube channel, the short film picks up 25 years after the events of New Nightmare and welcomes back Mika Hughes to reprise the role of Dylan Porter, the young son of Heather Langenkamp, now a grown-up man trying to find make his way into the world his parents raised him in Hollywood. Little does he know that the evil entity known as Freddy Krueger is back and eager to once again break into our world through the son of his favorite victim. After being delayed almost three years due the to pandemic, the project is celebrating the completion of filming by releasing today's trailer, that includes a first look at Freddy Krueger, played by Dave McRae, and featuring makeup design by Face-Off Season 9 winner Nora Hewitt. Friday 13th alumni Ron Sloan and Cindy Kanaya also make guest appearances. I am a backer of this film, so I'll, it's coming out August um, of this year on YouTube. So maybe I'll reach out to uh, Vince DeSani and see if... I know he's busy right now filming Never Heck Alone 2. So I'll reach out to him and maybe we can get him on the show. And who knows, maybe he can work his magic and get uh mika hughes on that'd be cool I'd like to talk to yeah him. and okay. you're gonna say like, why'd you use a remake glove that's exactly what i'm gonna ask the <laughs> fucking director
0: it doesn't make sense mika hughes was in fucking one movie and it's not even close to that glove or makeup so I don't unless the movie explains shit differently then we'll go that way so i'll give it a chance thinking about that but come on man
1: god you're, you're such a diva
0: oh uh, it's like it's uh, all right hand Leatherface a fucking rake and have him start killing with that
1: <laughs> that's the same fucking thing that is good all right this is the kind of story i love to hear especially the behind the news behind it so the extremely rare frankenstein 1931 poster just went up for auction one of only seven known to exist an extremely rare frankenstein 1931 poster Is now up for grabs from Heritage Auctions, expected to exceed $150,000 when all is said and done. At the time of this writing, the current high bid is already at $77,500. The team explains Frankenstein was hiding in a Pennsylvania attic all along. This 1931-style A movie poster designed by the legendary Universal Pictures art director, Carly Gross, that is not the man nor the monster, there are only seven known surviving examples of this Frankenstein. Until this year, it was tucked away in the Perpetual Night Beneath the Eaves of a Home in the Keystone State, and now it comes out to roar once more at heritage auctions. Indeed, this Frankenstein one-sheet, folded and unrestored but in near mid-condition nearly a century later, is a centerpiece of the auction house April 29th to the 30th movie poster signature auction. It's being offered alongside other coveted rarities that seldom see the light of day, including 116 horror and science fiction offerings from the collection of modern props, once described by the Los Angeles Times as a Highwood institution, they used to have a show on um Sci-Fi Channel where they would go out and they would off, um, authenticize, I guess is the word, Authent- often basically say this was from the movie or not, <laughs> and then they would help the person uh, take it to, to the auction. Uh, Heritage has only offered this Frankenstein poster twice in its history and only once in near mint condition, 19 years ago when the monster scared up a record-setting price of $189,750. Its 2004 price tag was befitting its status as one of the great posters from the golden age of silver screen. The sub the of the landmark 1988 book, A Real Art in which it's prominently featured, it's a major event in the field when previously unknown holy grails like the Frankenstein-style A come to light, uh, said Zach Pogmiler, Associate Director of Movie Posters. A discovery like this presents a once-in-a-generation opportunity, to private and institutional collectors alike and enriches our worldwide cinema culture. Other posters up for grabs are Ghost of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and The Wizard of Oz. Why can't this bullshit happen to me? Why can't I have something hidden in my attic or in my walls that make me a lot of money? You know? I hear you. Like, I remember when someone found uh, Action Comics the debut of Superman when they were renovating a house. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. All right. You're a fan of Chucky, right? You like Chucky. I like Chucky. I get that one, Chucky. Yeah, there's a documentary uh I just recently heard about called Living with Chucky. So we're going to join the Child's Play family. It's now streaming on Screen Box. I also think it's on Amazon as well. Um, it's a festival hit Living with Chucky, a full-blown child's play documentary that celebrates the entire franchise. What sets this documentary apart? The franchise is family for director Kyra Elise Gardner. Storming into pop culture in the late 1980s, the three-foot menace known as Chucky proved that Child's Play was anything but. Written and directed by Kyra Else Gardner, daughter of legendary special effects artist Tony Gardner. Living with Chucky looks back at the groundbreaking horror franchise. The documentary details the history of the Child's Play films by the cast and crew, in addition to Gardner's relationship with the series and the impact it had on her family. Gardner, who grew up alongside Chucky the Killer Dog, seeks out the other families surrounding the Child's Play films as they recount their experiences working on the ongoing franchise and what it means to be part of the Chucky family. In the new trailer, Gardner even refers to the killer good guy as her brother. Living with Chucky shows the franchise's impact on the evolution of horror, which remains prominent at the box office and on our television screens. The 29 remake of Child's Play brought in nearly $45 million at the box office, and the second season of the USA series Chucky premiered this past October. Living with Chucky enlisted franchise mainstays to deliver behind-the-scenes anecdotes and making-up details. Through Brad Dourif, Fiona Dourif, Jennifer Tilly, Alex Vincent, Christine Lee, Billy Boyd, Don Mancini, franchise producer Dave Kirshner, and more, we gain new perspective on our favorite movies. Okay. This one I'm a little eh about. I I love Gremlins growing up. I remember seeing it at the old Strand movie theater on the boardwalk when it came out in I think like 1984. We had the sequel, which eh, it was okay, you know? And then for years they've been talking about doing like a part three. Zach Galgin was on board, or are we gonna reboot it? So we're gonna get the next best thing. Gremlin Secret of the Mogwai. It's a trailer that premiered, I think, t- this morning or late last night. It's coming out on not HBO Max. It's now called Max. The- I got my max. email about that. <laughs> <laughs> the upcoming Gremlin Secret of the Mogwai puts an animated spin on the popular horror comedy franchise this year. And is coming to Max on May 23rd. I'm not too big on the animation. I really don't like the animation. No. The half-hour animated series from WB Animation and Amblin TV is set in 1920 Shanghai and tells the story of how 10-year-old Sam Wing met the young mogulai called Gizmo. Do we We really care? I mean... No, I'd rather have... That's why I don't like
0: this idea.
1: Yeah, I'd rather have events after gremlins
0: or like right you No, know, just do gremlins 3 that's all we need yeah the only actor you need to worry about is the dude and he's aged appropriately he's still young enough to do it the rest yeah. are effects i mean and get how i mandel to come back and voice
1: gizmo yeah i mean yeah. this would be easy to do this this which i'm wondering if i i don't think they brought him back for this cartoon which i think is a disservice you know? well he's
0: not alive yet it's in the 1920s
1: But this is, well, this is Gizmo. No, it's
0: a period piece set in the 1920s Shanghai.
1: Oh, it's not even Gizmo. But then, like.
0: No, it's Secret of the Mogwai. So, Gizmo's not even really in it. Well, there's got to be more than one Mogwai. He met the young Mogwai called Gizmo. So, Gizmo is already, when he gets them, 64 years old?
1: No, this is Gizmo. Read it again. Yeah. Tell us the story. No, that's what 10-year-olds. I'm saying. But they're saying this is, Gizmo this is, is 64
0: yeah, Gizmo. when he hits 1984. Well, he's probably like Grogu, you know. Ah, uh, grows up <laughs> real slow. This <laughs> yeah. is an episode. Nobody asked for this. I can guarantee you that. No, like, just like no. just like they're fucking up Harry Potter. Like the movies. No, the movies the... were great. Why are we
1: redoing it as a show? Probably because they. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if they want to do like do other wizards or something in Hogwarts or something. Do the
0: kids just expand or do yeah. after Hogwarts?
1: You know what I mean, like because they're not Hollywood doing has, anything. Hollywood has no originality. Like uh, anyway, continue. My apologies. That's okay. It's got a great Asian cast. Uh, Wen. I love her. I've been following her since she was on ER. She was in Agents of Shield. She's currently on the quasi hit in the book of bubba fett (laughs) (laughs) the mandalorian
0: Um, season (laughs) three yeah
1: uh james Hong. um what was he uh he was was he the old man in um big trouble in little china played the villain i think if it's if it's either him or kurt russell's friend but i know the guy that played the villain just recently passed away so i'm not sure who he it is. it says blade runner so i'm guessing that it's the older guy yeah bd wong who i've been following him for a very long time as well uh jurassic park he was a great character on um uh law and order special victims unit he uh came back to jurassic park as the villain you know and uh, he was also he also played a good um Gosh, on Gotham, it was uh, the like the uh, head warden of Arkham Asylum. I can't think of his name right now. So, we got Fong Wing, strange, Dr. Str- Dr. Uh, Dr. Strange. No, no, yeah, that was Hugo, Hugo, Hugo strange, strange, right? strange, yeah, yeah. So, we got Fong Wing voiced by Mignon Wen. Fong Wing is Sam's mother and doctor of Chinese medicine. She's resourceful, sly, funny, and fiercely protective of her family, even her frequently troublesome father. Grandpa, voiced by James Hong, a free spirit and self-proclaimed expert in Chinese myth and magic. Grandpa is the elder of the Wing family. He claims to have traveled the world on grand adventures, but nobody really believed him until now. Hong Wing. Voiced by B.D. Wong, Hong Wing is Sam's father and the family's calm rock. He's never believed his father-in-law's tales of magic and adventure. But when he and Fong become separated from Sam, he realizes the world is stranger than he thought. And he'll need to become braver to reunite his family. And then we have Sam Wing, voiced by Isaac Wing. I don't know who that is, so we'll skip over him. So it's set in 1920 Shanghai. Again, it's going to talk about the old man who ran the Chinese shop in Chinatown comes across Magwai. Um, So they strike up a long, lifelong friendship as Wing attempts to return Gizmo to his family, encountering and sometimes battling colorful monsters and spirits from Chinese folklore. Meanwhile, the two and street thief Ellie are pursued by a power-hungry industrialist and his growing army of evil gremlins. So, all right. All right, this one. They're expanding and keep on expanding. The Conjuring television series in the works at HBO Max. The Conjuring Universe is expanding beyond the big screen with Warner Brothers Discovery. Today, i announcing that a television series and the work for the Max streaming service. Peter Safran is developing a drama series based on New Line Cinema's film franchise with Warner Brothers Television. The series is set to continue the story established in the feature films. James Wan's Atomic Monster Productions and Peter Safran's The Safran Company will produce the franchise's very first small screen project in association with WBTV. I won't go into all the films, so I guess we're going to dig in deeper into the Warren Files, some that are not cool enough to make their own movie.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense, but you're not going to get those two to play Ed and Lorraine, so you're kind of just screwing it up already.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, mean, we've had it in the past where we've had a hit uh, movie, like, take for example, M.A.S.H., I think you had one or two actors from the movie that came onto the TV show, so I mean if if they can get like someone who resembles the current actors that play them, you know it'll be weird watching someone else portray Ed and Lorraine or maybe uh I'm surprised you know who's not going to be a part of it, but you probably will that Tony Sparrow guy mm. <laughs> Okay, so moving on. Welcome to Derry, Pennywise prequel series coming to Max in 2024. The upcoming series, Welcome to Derry, will serve as an official prequel to the two Stephen King-based It movies from Andy Muschietti and Warner Brothers Discovery has announced today that the series will premiere on the Max streaming service in 2024. Max is just, like, banging things out left and right, you know? Um, I don't know any of these people except for James Remar, uh, so... I know it's going to be a prequel. I heard that Scar Scar is not going to be Pennywise, which I think sucks. I think they um, could pull it off with makeup though. Yeah, but I think this is gonna be pre-pennywise, so I don't think it's gonna be a clown like the clown we were familiar with. You know, but it was what already was it? always a clown. When they look back in the history books, um, it was always a clown. True, but he wasn't, yeah. But we'll he see. was he, we'll see. Yeah. Now Oppenheimer, I want to see that. Oppenheimer.
0: Why does that sound familiar? James Remar is in the movie Oppenheimer. It's
1: about creating the atomic bomb. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That would be good. Yep. All right. And then um, we have something I thought you would like. Uh, We got a Satanic Panic series coming out called Hysteria. And this is coming out on Peacock. And it just announced that Julie Bowen uh, from Hubie Halloween and American Werewolf from Paris will star in the straight to series Coming of Age for Hysteria, a drama series that explores America's dark history of mass hysteria through the shocking story of teenage satanic panic. If that's not enough, Kong Skull Island director Jordan Volk-Roberts will helm this premiere episode about the series when a beloved varsity quarterback disappears during a satanic panic. One of the, late, of the late 1980s, a struggling high school heavy metal band of outcasts realized that they can capitalize on the town's sudden interest in the occult, by building a reputation as a satanic metal band, until a bizarre series of murders, kidnappings, and reported supernatural activity triggers a leather studded witch hunt that leads directly back to them. Bowen will play Linda Campbell, the mother of a teenage outcast. Linda experiences a series of supernatural disturbances that force her to question everything she knows about her son, as well as the growing threat of Satanism in a small Midwestern town. What do you think? You think you're, you think I'm, I'm, more...
0: I'm kind of in. Depends on what kind of actors they get for this, because yeah. if it's if it's kid-driven, you know how important the actors are. Yeah. So this could be actually pretty
1: cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. So we, and I think you might like this because you're a fan of Stranger Things. We have an animated series coming soon from Netflix, and congratulations to Millie Bobby Brown. She just got engaged to Bon Jovi's son, Mrs. Uh, son of Bon Jovi. She'll be, you know, I would like to know how they met, you know, like. Or they had a party, and he, like, wow. said, hey, my dad's Bon Jovi. How old is he, do you know? <laughs> He's got to be in his mid-twenties, I think. Early to mid-twenties. And she just turned 18, right? Just turned 18, that predator. Uh-huh. A little weird. <laughs> yeah. Actually, let's look it up right now. Uh, let's see. Is he, is he going to be on to catch a predator? Should be. Let's
0: see. Because if it was a normal dude who did that in his twenties, he'd be attacked and canceled right now.
1: Right, right. But since
0: we're midget Bon Jovi's son.
1: (laughs) Let's see. Come on. All right, let's see. All right, so I don't know which Bon Jovi, I think. Hmm. I don't know which Bon Jovi son she's married to. His youngest son is 20. We'll be 21. I don't think... I think it's... Jacob. Okay. This can't be him. Let me see. No, it's not him. Let's see. Jake Bond, So he is... Okay. He's... uh. He'll be 21 in May. Okay. So it's three years, yeah. And they've been together for about two years, I think. Two or three years, so... yeah, I'm just saying, if it was normal people, it'd be <laughs> fucking full outrage. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Yeah. All right, so ahead of Stranger Things Season 5, set to be the final season of the main series, Bloody Disgusting has learned that a Stranger Things animated series is in the works at Netflix. Nearly all details about the show are being kept under wraps, aside from the fact that it was developed by Eric Robles and Flying Bark Productions. Robles has previously created the animated shows Random, Cartoons, Fanboy, and Chum Chum, and Glitch Text. Never heard of any of them. Stranger Things creators, the Ducker Brothers, executive produced by Upside Down Pictures, along with Ribless of Flying Bark, as well as Sean Levy and Dan Cohen of 21 Laps. So I'm thinking it's going to be in the world of Stranger Things, maybe. Um, who knows? I read the comics where they expanded and they were not they were pretty good. It focused a lot on how the kids were made and whatnot and yeah. how they were stolen. So I could be for There's it. There's
0: a lot of stories to be told, so we'll see what they do with it.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm not yeah. automatically dismissing that. No. I You know, the animation is sort of like that anime, so they're, of course their eyes are a little bigger, but um, we'll see. Who knows, you know? They um, Also, I watched the Texas Killing Fields. Oh, yes. How was that?
0: It was a good documentary. Pretty crazy scenario. Um,
1: I'm not going to give it away. If you guys haven't watched it, watch it. But yeah, I, was... I think there was a movie that came out years ago. If it's like... I don't know if I think yeah I don't know like how true based it was but oh, where where did I watch it recently
0: The movie was called oh. The Killing Fields Yeah well, that um. that's how they the media started naming this place in Texas so the, uh, the okay. movie's not
1: related Oh you know how why I know the Texas Killing Fields really uh the grim Life was out there like a year or so ago. Your favorite uh YouTubers. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh it was surprising,
0: and of course, a lot of uh police dropping the ball. But
1: um that's usually the case, you know. What are you gonna do? Yep. All right, so I got some news. Oh, um, we got some news. More news. Um, give me one second. We got two pretty cool news. I'm just trying to bring something up. My phone is like slow because slow it's on. an android whatever okay all right so i was gonna attend um the horror side show market up in edison just go as a, a ticket holder and ryan scott weber who's the promoter hey said hey man you, you coming out to the market i said yeah it's coming out um so i said but you need some more vendors he's like yeah if you want to come vend so I said, why not? You know, it's it's not like a uh, N.J. Harkon thing. It's more on a, it's it's a little bit quieter. It's just from 10 to four. It's more vendor focus. And then with a few celebrities. So I like to think that <sighs> Tony Moran canceled. So Ryan reached out to me. Next best thing. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they actually have a pretty good lineup uh, in, in like past years, as far as the amount of guests. So from Friday, 13th part two. We have Bill Randolph, uh, who was uh, played Jeff in Part Two. We have my favorite, not the final girl, Laura Marie Taylor, who played Vicky in Part Two, famous brown panties. Um, we have two actresses from Annie, Tony Ann Gazzandi, who played Molly, and I can't think of the other girl's name here. So here's a here's a little six degrees. So I went to school with Tony's younger sisters, the Gazandi twins they are related to okay are you familiar with um friday 13th part six uh-huh. wherever the red dot go you bang yeah, sheriff that dude. rick uh-huh. deputy rick that's like their uncle or cousin or something so well six degrees jennifer banco from friday 13th part Three. Oh yeah three part seven, seven. Texas the chancellor massacre part three and she was also in another horror movie. I just can't think of it right now. But she was uh young Tina. So I'm going to get a photo with her in my part seven. And then Rochelle Davis, who played the young girl in The Crow, which I think is cool. So whenever I go to the events, if I'm booked at something, I usually do a fundraiser. So Ryan Scott Murphy was... Yeah, Ryan Scott Murphy.
0: You really want to watch American Horror Story.
1: Ryan Scott <laughs> Weber. Sorry, Ryan. Um... He, you know, he's nice enough to promote me as like a guest, you know, which is really cool. And I'm raising money for our friend, previous guest, uh, Ashley Pagey, her mom's rescue, safe and sound animal rescue. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So uh, you come out, uh, I'm doing a five dollar donation and you get a picture with me as many as you want. I'll have prop rep clothes and I'm talking like you're going to hear this before the uh, the weekend, but um The cool thing is I made friends with a woman who creates horror theme reads and they're about like three feet like tall and round, you know, she's and they're they're about two hundred dollars, one fifty two hundred. And the work that she puts into these things are ridiculous. She makes an American street one, just saying Uh, she's working on an alien right now, like a face hugger. But uh, she's helped me with uh, raffles in the past, Mothershed Creations. She's down in Georgia. She was nice enough to donate, again, a $150 gift certificate to her store. So for every $5 the person donates, they can be entered in to win the raffle. So you can get your chances are better if you put in more than $5. So that's going to be in Edison, New Jersey, Saturday, the 15th. So by the time this comes out it'll already um have happened and for next week's podcast and record we'll talk about all the great things and then another cool thing happened i'm not sure if i told you but i had a musician reach out to me wednesday and she asked me if i would be interested in playing jason in a crystal lake parody song she wrote her yeah. group of friends are doing this and it's she's from south jersey they're filming down like in the campgrounds in Cape May County. So I watched her video We're, We we follow each other on Instagram, but it's the first time we ever interacted. And the song is a parody. She did. It's like an it's an acoustic and it's the it reminds me of like on your first day at camp, they would play this song about like the rules and everything. It's definitely an 80s vibe to it, which is really cool. Very cool. So your boy's gonna be
0: all over Jason, baby.
1: All over, you know. I I took the I took Hollywood by storm with being in the fan film. Now I'm taking the music world by storm. I'm gonna be like Pitbull. No, okay.
0: <laughs> Can't stay a Pitbull, but go for it, brother. <laughs> oh, do you?
1: Man. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else to share?
0: Uh, do you want to go over that we're gonna be somewhere next Saturday?
1: Oh yes. Yeah. So. Saturday, April 24th, we are going to go to the Blairstown Diner up in Blairstown, New Jersey. Now, have you ever eaten at the diner, Jared, or you just been up there, right?
0: That'll be April 22nd, by the way. What did I say, 24th?
1: 24th. Oh, man. No, I've never eaten at the diner. Good food. Good food. Um, so yeah, so we're going to start like, um, something we've been talking about for a while doing filming locations. So I thought what better place to start out with than my favorite location, Blairstown, New Jersey, Hope, New Jersey, Hardwick Township. Um, they're all within 15 minutes of each other and we're going to start a day off at the diner. We're going to interview Gary, the owner and Mike, the manager talking about, you know, when Gary purchased it, how, you know, they keep the, um, they keep the diner's history alive with the fans of the franchise, you know, because Blair sounds a sleepy town. So when there's a Friday the 13th, you want to, you want to reap the rewards of something that was filmed over 40 years ago, because uh-huh. other than being Friday the 13th, I mean, they do business as a diner, but when they have the Friday the 13th weekends or the Camp Crystal Lake tours, they're, it's an influx of uh, tourists. So we're going to talk to them about what it's like being a part of one of the greatest horror franchises of all time. And then I'm going to take Jared and we're going to go to each of the filming locations from the movie.
0: We're going to make and Terry play, uh, Annie and walk past oh, the nice. graveyard. I already thought Do about because I know where he we was standing to take that shot. Right. So we could have Terry walk instead of Annie.
1: Okay. Do you want to bring the dog and be like, no, nope, hey, nope. I, mean, I don't, oh I don't, I don't want to bring the dog. <laughs> Fuck that dog. Terry needs a backpack too. So get her like a little backpack. <laughs> I got one. She can wear my laptop at. There you go. There you go. That's awesome. Hey so, babe, uh, by the way, you're gonna do this
0: for us. You're gonna listen to this on Monday. So
1: I think I think it'd be great like if we can like uh kind of like put like in a second screen like the the clip from the movie. We could do that. If, yeah, I think that'd be I can I can um get the clips for you and send them to you. Yeah, do that. that. Yeah. So I think it'd be pretty cool, you know, something we want to do and I mean there's a lot of other cool places we want to go like dave brown uh, did we talk about it last week where he went to the amyville house yeah 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 so um yeah so that's what we're gonna do and you know hopefully the weather won't be too hot like it was today because you and me both don't like the heat so so
0: far it's looking mild
1: so we'll be okay Okay. yeah so that's what's going on and uh other than that you know i'm going to cramp crystal lake june 2nd they're having a tour with eight guests and uh three of them i don't have autographs and they're all from part two which is going to be great so uh actually no annie from the first one i'm finally going to meet her and then there's two others from part two i believe i forget i got so many autographs they kind of just all blend together <laughs> all
0: right so let's see, get on to our main topic let's hop in our first movie curse edition
1: yeah so um we don't get a good movie curse anymore now it's been a <laughs> while so the way I looked at it, um, there's, a, there's a nice amount of movies that have curses attached with them. But looking at it, I was like, wow, The Exorcist is its own show. because yeah. There's so much that has happened with it. So we're going to talk about things that happened during filming and then after filming. Uh, because this actually has a murder attached with it. And I didn't know this until I was uh, listening a couple years ago to... Um, I want to say the last podcast on the left, maybe, Uh or uh, Hollywood crime scene, one of the two when they were doing the Exorcist movie review. But all right, let's get into it. So I got this from Slash.com. The Exorcist had numerous deaths and disasters on set. The brother of Max von Sydow, who plays Father Marin, died on the first day of shooting. One of the technicians who worked on refrigerating the film's set, Young Reagan's Bedroom, was made to be so cold that you could see the actors' breath plumes, passed away during production. There was a fire that destroyed most of the film sets, except curiously, Reagan's bedroom, where the demonic being makes its appearances. This incident led the filmmakers to hire an actual Jesuit priest to come in and bless the set. Both actress Ellen Burstyn, who played Chris McNeil, and Linda Blair suffered from back injuries on set although that was because the stunt harnesses they were attached to were handled a little too roughly by technicians i mean just watching uh linda blair flailing like that that makes my back hurt <laughs> uh these stories were only sensationalized by additional reports that director freaking would keep the entire cast and crew on edge by occasionally firing guns into the air to startle people and by playing very loud music on set between takes. There was also the dark fact that one of the medical technicians who worked on the aniography sequence, one Paul Bateson was convicted of murdering a variety reporter named Addison Vero. We'll get into that a little bit later. Bateson never provided a motive and served 24 years in prison before being released on parole. The murder of Addison Verrill would provide inspiration for Freakin to make his 1980 film Cruising, about an undercover cop investigating a serial killer in New York's gay leather scene. Because the exorcist tapped into such powerful religious iconography and because it dealt terrifyingly with notions very familiar to practicing Roman Catholics, it was immediately a sensation. Billy Graham, the televangelist, declared that in making a movie about demonic possessions, the actual film stock on which the exorcist was printed was itself also possessed. (laughs) You're shaking your head. You want to chime in? (laughs) I can't stand religion. And this guy that...
0: Oh, Go ahead, Go I,
1: I, I fucking can't. Oh, <laughs> uh, brother. Okay. So additionally, there were reports of audience fainting or vomiting in the theaters because the exorcist was so intense. That I would get because it came out still... I mean, it wasn't American Pie so much as like in the 50s. We, and this is like, you know, Vietnam War was winding down, I believe. So... We were used to seeing something on TV that we've never seen before, but in the movie theaters, this was something no one has seen before. So I, I, and I wish... Man, I would love to go back in time and be in that line for like movies like that and Aliens and all those great films where you just see the line wrapped around the movie theater. Like Those are just like awesome images. For Catholics, the exorcist laid bare in literal terms the constant struggle between Christ and the adversary and underlined the church officials do indeed have the power to repel actual evil. I recall film critic Roger Ebert once taking pride in his Catholic upbringing when it comes to possession thrillers as only Roman Catholics were equipped with dealing with monsters and the undead, a Presbyterian minister, for instance, would simply not do. After the release of The Exorcist, not only did a slew of imitators and ripoffs hit the film market, but actual instances of real world demon possession began to increase. Demand for exorcism, something that Catholics might have already been familiar with, Also went up one can chalk this up to a certain kind of religious hysteria, or perhaps there was something demonic lurking in the film stock of Exorcist Prince. Again, we're going with that. All right. So this one's actually pretty cool. The Amulet of Pazuzu. Pazuzu! There have been rumors, but only rumors, that the demonic amulet in the exorcist was also a cursed object. The truth is less interesting, unfortunately. In the opening sequences of the exorcist, we see Father Marin at an archaeological site in Iraq unearthing an amulet with a demonic face. It is the amulet of Pazuzu. The appearance of this amulet will end up connecting to Marin's eventual confrontation with the demon all the way across the globe in Georgetown. Although the amulets look convincing and the iconic iconography of the demon read as being impossibly ancient the version of Pazuzu seen in the movie is in fact invented indeed the name Pazuzu wasn't even mentioned in the 1973 feature film and was later revealed in John Boardman's trashy sequel Exorcist 2 the heretic to be the name of the demon that possessed young Reagan Pazuzu is indeed a real deity from Babylonian mythology but author William Peter Blatty who wrote the original 1971 novel created a version of Pazuzu that is an amalgam of several Assyrian and Babylonian deities. According to the actual myth, Pazuzu is so frightening he can scare off other lesser demons, leading some ancient people to wear Pazuzu amulets as production. In ancient Babylonian tradition, truly evil deities were not depicted in art for fear of evoking the actual demon. It's the reason you won't find many images of Eric Eshgal, the Queen of the Underworld, in the film version of The Exorcist, it is stated that young Regan is possessed by the straight-up Christian version of the devil. The book and the sequel make more explicit that Pazuzu is the one to blame. Omitting Pazuzu from the film may have been a wise move on Prekin's part. Pazuzu, after all, is not a modern American monster, but an exotic being from a foreign land. In importing the demon to America from another continent, there is an air of xenophobia hanging around. If Freakin had named Pazuzu, the exorcist would be less about the confrontation of tangible, palpable evil, as it may still exist in the modern world, and more about a bigoted, run-of-the-mill American fear of the other, of the foreigner. Whew, okay, that was a lot there. So what do you think about that?
0: I think they did good in leaving that name out because I think it would have made the movie
1: less scary. Yeah, you know when I think of Zuzu, I think of Zuzu from uh, "Um, uh, It's a Wonderful Life." His youngest kid, Zuzu, was her name. So, all right, so we're going to get into Paul Bateson. Uh, this is some crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so, Paul Bateson, born August twenty fourth, nineteen forty. Yes, he's still alive is an American convicted murderer and former radiographer. He appeared as a radiologic radiologic tech, technologist. I am like so tongue-tied tonight. <laughs> In a scene from the 1973 horror film, The Exorcist, which was inspired when the film's director, William Friedkin, watched him perform a cerebral anag- anography. I think it's angiography. Picture. Angiography, there you go. The scene with a considerable amount of blood on screen was for many viewers the film's most... Excuse me. Disturbing scene. Medical professionals have praised it for its realism. And it still holds up to today because it still, like, looks real and painful. You actually felt for, uh Reagan. And yeah. uh, In 1979, Bateson was convicted of the murder of film industry journalist Addison Verrill and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. In 2003, he was released on parole, which ended after five years. Prior to Bateson's trial, police and prosecutors implicated him in a series of unsolved slayings of gay men in Manhattan, known as the Bag Murders. Killings he had reportedly boasted about while in jail, While with prosecutors bringing up it up at his sentencing. However, no additional charges were ever brought against him. The experience inspired Freakin to make the 1980 film Cruising, which while based on a novel written a decade earlier, incorporated in its storyline the city's leather subculture, which... With which Bateson had identified in 2012 freaking recalled having visited the jail Bateson prior to his trial and having a conversation which suggested that either Bateson had committed the additional bag murders or merely that. He was considering confessing to them for a later sentence. However, other than the alleged comments made during a frequent interview and the assertions by, assertions by police and prosecutors immediately prior to and during Bateson's murder trial that he had admitted to the serial murders while in jail. There was no other record of definitive incriminating evidence that Bateson committed the bag murders, so though he remains the most con- cons- consistently proposed suspect. Despite the lack of conclusive evidence, Bateson is often described as a serial killer. So we'll get into a little bit about his life. Uh, Man, everything comes out of Pennsylvania, I I feel like, ever since I moved here. (laughs) Bateson was born on August 24th, 1940, and grew up in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, the son of a metal urgest. he would later suggest that his appearance in the exorcist was revenge on his father for punishing him as a child by making him stay home from saturday matinees at the local movie theater and listen to opera on the radio instead he served in the army in the early 1960s where he began drinking heavily out of boredom while stationed in germany beginning a lifetime struggle with alcoholism after his discharge he returned to lansdale and stopped drinking In 1964, he moved to New York City, where he began a relationship with a man. He would later describe himself as a not exclusively gay, who he said was involved in music. The relationship was marked by heavy drinking, either in the form of cocktails at the Pierre and frequent parties at the couple's home or weekends in the fire iron enclave of Cherry Grove. So I never heard about Fire Island until the latest season of um, American Horror Story. There was an episode um, that took place on Fire Ireland, and it was basically a place where gay men could go and um, not have to worry about being ridiculed or beaten or anything, kind of like how Key West was, I guess, back in the day. Um, Beautiful, beautiful area, too. I can only imagine how much the houses are. It's like the... um, The Hamptons for the gay community, (laughs) both with uh, so uh, the enclave of Cherry Grove, both with food cooked by Bateson. Five years later, Bateson's mother died of a stroke and his younger brother died by suicide. Bateson trained as a neurological radiological technician and began working in a capacity after relationship ended in 1973. He moved to the Brooklyn neighborhood of Borough Park. He commuted from there to his job at New York University Medical Center, where he was well liked and respected by his colleagues. In late 1972, film director William Freakin visited NYUMC while he was preparing to make The Exorcist, the film adaptation of William Peter Blatty's novel That Name. He wanted to view some medical procedures since he was considering showing some in the film. He was also looking for staff who might be willing to be extras in the film since he would be shooting interiors in New York, although the film itself is set in Washington, D.C. Dr. Barton Lane invited the director to watch a cerebral angiography at the time, such angiographies were performed by puncturing the patient's carotid car- artery in the front of the neck in order to insert a catheter through which a contrast agent was injected in order to make the patient's blood vessels more visible under x-rays. In the moments between the arterial puncture and the insertion of the catheter, blood freely issued from the tube mouth in the rhythm with the patient's heartbeat. Freakin was sufficiently impressed that he told Lane immediately afterward that only did he want to depict the procedure in the film, he wanted Lane to be the one performing it on camera. Along with the nurse and Bateson, the technician who recalled Lane in 2018 was the best he ever had. A few months later, Freakin and his crew returned to shoot the scene, blocking off part of the hospital's radiological, radio ology department for two successful weekends it was one of the first scenes shot during principal photography in which the character reagan is examined medically to see if any of the strange behavior later found to be the result of demonic possession she has been exhibiting can be scientifically explained lane later recalled hearing that the crew was still trying to figure out how to make reagan's head spin for a scene later on in that film like the angiogram became one of the film's best remembered moments In the scene is Bateson, who speaks most of the dialogue, demonstrating the calming bedside manner, another attribute that drew praise from those who worked alongside that he had used with many actual child patients. He can be seen in the background early as Reagan is wheeled into the room, helping put her on the table and attaching wires to her shoulders. As the film shows Reagan's face in tight close-up, alternating with takes of the procedure being finished, including her blood spurting into the air and staining her surgical gown as it had in the procedure. Frequent watch. Bateson's voice is heard off camera instructing her, warning her that the card puncture will hurt and reassuring her. She winces immediately afterward. So did they really do it or was it like fake? You know, like they don't tell you. <laughs> I, I, it had to be fake. Yeah. Yeah. But it looks so real and. You know, oh man. Upon The Exorcist's release at the end of 73, the scene became notorious as the one that audiences found most disturbing despite its lack of lack of any of the supernatural content that underlies the rest of the film's horror elements. Medical professionals, including Lane and the others involved in the scene, have also praised it as a realistic depiction of the procedure of special historic interest since it's no longer performed with a carotid puncture and one of the most realistic depictions of any medical procedure in a popular film. Hmm. Around the time The Exorcist was released, Bateson's drinking again increased, aver- adversely affecting his social life. Nobody likes a drunk, he later told the Village Voice. In 1975, it affected his job performance at NYUMC. Let him go. Bateson sustained himself with odd jobs, such as doing light repair work and cleaning in apartments near where he now lived in Greenwich Village. That sucks. You go from having this great medical job to being a janitor and taking tickets at a theater showing pornographic films. He also went to alcoholic anonymous meetings and was successful for a while in staying sober. He socialized with the recovering alcohol gay men and was hoping to start another long-term relationship. However, by 1977, Bateson had begun drinking again more heavily. He said later that he was drinking at least a quart of vodka a day, which made him passive and curtailed his social life again after a few shots i'd shave and get dressed intending to go out but then after the vodka i had no energy left to move mm. on those nights when he was able to go out basin patronized leather bars something he had started doing back in 1970 with a group that styled themselves as bikers i just think of um the blue oyster from police academy yep <laughs> leather impresses me he said later contrasting it with drag and swish don't know what swish is they gave gays a bad name like any extreme, extreme group would. On September 14, 1977, Addison Vero, a reporter who covered the film industry for a Variety, was found dead in his Horatio Street apartment. He had been beaten and stabbed. There were some signs of a struggle. However, nothing of value had been taken. Police believed that if the killer's motives had been robbery... He might have been looking for cash or jewelry, since those could be taken quickly. There was no evidence of forced entry. Verrill had likely let his killer into the apartment. There were several empty beer cans and half full liquor glasses at the scene. Gay activist and journalist Arthur Bell, a friend of Verrill's, wrote an article about the case in The Village Voice setting it against a larger issue of how murders of gay men several of which occurred yearly in the village were rarely taken seriously by police or reported on the media since they were seen as a result of sexual encounters gone wrong. So this really makes the latest season of American Horror Story a little bit more because it was set during the start of the AIDS pandemic but there was like this supernatural killer that wore like a leather not a gimp outfit but Remember like demolition from WWF. It kind of reminded me of that outfit without their mask. So I gotcha. actually, he did wear a mask. Um, Okay, so according to Bell, Varel's friend said that while he did not seek the kink that was abundant at the mineshaft, he nevertheless liked the attitudes of many of the customers. He was considered a regular holding court at a corner table, not only at the mineshaft, but the Anvil, another popular leather bar, and other popular gay bars of the era. His presence was seen as making those bars popular. Bell ended his article by giving the phone number of the New York Police Department's Homicide Bureau and asking anyone with information to call them. However, eight days after the killings, after eight days after the killing, someone called him, claiming to be the killer, apparently to correct Bell's assumption that the killer was a psychopath who targeted gays. I like your story and I like your writing. The caller told him, but I'm not a psychopath. In a story that ran on The Voices' front page, the caller recounted the events of the night that ended in Vero's murder. I'm gay and I needed money and I'm an alcoholic, he said. After three months of sobriety, he claimed he had gone out to Badlands, a Christopher Street bar, in the early hours of September 14th, where Vero, whom he did not know, offered to buy him a beer. A proposition that caller accepted that that beer became several with two consuming poppers and cocaine in addition to the drinks at 3 a.m they left badlands and went into the mine shaft where they continued their alcoholic and alcohol and drug consumption the caller told bell he was impressed by how popular his companion was i didn't realize he was such a superstar and i wanted to go home with him after two hours they took a taxi to vero's apartment something the caller said vero was reluctant to do because he had to get up early and work on a story there, the two had more alcohol and cocaine, followed by sex at 7.30 a.m. The caller said that afterwards he realized that as that was as far as Vero had wanted the relationship to go. I needed money and I hated the rejection, so still in- intoxicated, I decided to do something I'd never done before. After incapacitating Vero with a frying pan from his kitchen, the caller recounted he stabbed the journals with a knife, although he said he chose the wrong part of his chest. After the killing, the caller said he took cash totaling $57, which would be $255 in today's money, and Beryl's Master Charge card, passport, and some clothes. He used the money to buy liquor and was consequently drunk for the entire next day. Bell confirmed with another source that the man had been seen at popular bathhouse house that night. The caller offered some information about himself besides the relevant to understanding the crime. He claimed to be the son of an orchestra leader to have a wife in Berlin who did not understand his homosexuality and a teenage son. He had an interest in the arts and he wanted to be a dancer when he was younger. Bell noted that he talked about wanting to atone for the crime several times, which he connected to the conversation taking place on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. But I don't want to give myself up. I want to be able to practice again. I lose my license. He declined to tell Bell what sort of practice the license was for, suggesting that would help identify him. When Bell contacted police about the call, they told him that it seemed like the first solid lead in the case. The caller had known about the stolen credit card. A detailed police had not made public and described a white substance found on the floor of Errol's apartment at Crisco, a shortening frequently used at the time by gay men as a sexual lubricant. Police had not thus far been able to identify it and had also not made the information public. Detectives suspected the caller would call Bell again and went to his apartment to wait with him. At 11 p.m. his phone rang. It was not the original caller, but a man who identified himself as Mitch. He told Bell the killer was Paul Bateson, whom he had gotten to know while the two were drying out at St. Vincent's Hospital a few months earlier. While he believed Bateson was not the man's real name since he knew the man to have used the pseudonym Johnny Johnson, at one point he said Bateson was an unemployed x-ray technician that had called him earlier and confessed to the crime. Mitch asked to meet Bell in person, but the police told Bell not to do so. Instead, they just arrested Bateson at his East 12th Street apartment where he was lying around drunk. When he, he, when he was asked if he knew why he was being arrested, he pointed to an open copy of The Voice with Bell's article and indicated that this was probably why. A detective sent, went to the bar and brought Mitch in for questioning as well. He was released after a few hours. Bateson eventually gave police a handwritten confession that was consistent with what he had told Bell. Bateson was charged with second-degree murder and detained while awaiting trial. Bell interviewed Bateson in prison a month later, visited him at Wreckers Island. Bateson talked generally about his life, something he said he did often, as did other acquaintances of Bateson, whom Bell spoke with. Jail, he said, was helping him to again get sober. His biggest regret about being in custody was missing the new season of the Joffrey Ballet, at the time based in New York. Bell admitted that he too might have taken Bateson up on an offer to go to his apartment if he had met him in a bar rather than a jail. While Bateson avoided talking about the crime he was charged with on what Bell supposed to be advice from his attorney, he did talk about the trial. He pleaded not guilty and expected that to be the verdict after a long trial. A lot of people will be hurt, parents, friends, then I'll tear up my roots and settle somewhere else. At the time of Bateson's arrest, police had also been investigating a series of murders of gay men over the previous two years, which they believed were committed by the same person due to similarities in the killings. Modus operandi. Six corpses of men had been found dismembered in bags floating in the Hudson River. None of them have ever been identified, but police traced the clothes on them to shops in Greenwich Village that catered to the gay community. Since the bags reportedly had wording on them connecting them to NYUMC's neuropsychiatric unit, and its memberment of the bodies appeared to have been done by someone skilled in using a knife, investigators began to suggest publicly that Bateson might be a suspect. As they were referred to officially, the Cupi killings. C-U-P-P-I, for Circumstances Unknown Pending Police Investigation. Those killings were the subject of another interview Bateson gave, although it would not be made public until 2012. Freakin, who recalled recalled him from both his initial visit to NYUMC and the filming of the Angiography for the Exorcist as a nice young man who stood out due to the earring and studded bracelets he wore, neither of which were common accessories for men at the time, read a long story about the case in the Daily News. Surprised that the general Bateson he recalled could have even been accused of murder. Frequently came to Rikers to talk with him after getting permission from Bateson's lawyer. In an interview with Mubi. <sighs> the hell when I read this, I'm like Mubi, is that like uh about <laughs> clerks too? <laughs> now nah, it's pronounced M-U-B-I. The notebook that can coincided with the release of this film, Killer Joe. Frequent said Bateson admitted killing Verrall, though although the director then incorrectly stated that Bateson had dismembered the body and thrown the bag body parts in the river. Bateson said that the prosecutors were offering him a deal where if he confessed to the bag murders and some other unsolved killings, he would receive a shortened sentence. So it kind of reminds me of the um, what was the serial killer uh, Henry Lee Lucas who just started saying, "Yeah, I did this and I did that." Yeah. Like believed him or kind of fed him this the information. (laughs) Um, He told frequent he was not sure if he would accept it. In a 2018 episode of the Hollywood Reporters, It Happened in Hollywood podcast. Frequent attributed to, to Bateson a confession to the unsolved murders as a result of his conversation with Bateson, Frequent decided it was time to make the film adaptation of New York Times reporter Gerald Walker's 1970 novel, Cruising, about a police officer going undercover in the gay community to catch a serial killer. Life had already imitated art with an NYPD officer, Randy Jurgensen, going undercover in gay bars since he was similar in appearance to the victims of the bad killer. Intrigued by the leather subculture, Bateson had told him about frequent new Matthew Ionello, the mafioso who owned the mine shaft. And that's weird. I didn't think I always thought the mafia was against the gay uh, culture. A hundred
0: percent. But if they're making money, they don't give a fuck. Gotcha. That, that's the key to the mob. If it makes money,
1: they will bend rules. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I wonder if this guy happened to be gay well probably i mean if he was he hit it very well because he probably would have been whacked you know in the in the 70s yeah he would have been yeah. dead yeah um so he owned the mine shaft and the other manhattan gay bars of the air and was able to visit the bar himself he later added scenes set there to to his film released in 1980 to mixed reviews after heavy protests by the city's gay community during production in pre-trial motions, Bateson, through his attorney, attempted to have his confession suppressed. He argued that he had been drunk at the time and the police had not yet read him his rights. Bateson also denied having made the phone call to Bell, claiming his purported confession was just based on what he had read about the case in The Voice. Bateson was went on trial in early 1979. The state entered both its confessions and Bell's voice article into evidence against him. Contrary to the prediction of a long trial in the wake of his arrest, Bateson was convicted after 4 days on March 5, 1979. Wow. At Bateson's sentencing a month later, prosecutor William Hoyt called him a psychopath and reiterated his belief that he was responsible for six unsolved murders. While Hoyt admitted there was no direct proof of this, he he said that Bateson had confessed to those crimes in a conversation with Richard Bryan, a friend who had testified for the state at the trial that Bateson had confessed that viral murder to him. Speaking for himself, Bateson denied any role in the other murders. Justice Morris Goldman sentenced Bateson to 20 years to life in prison, five years less than the minimum Hoyt had asked for. He ultimately found the connection to the other murders, too affirmable to merit any consideration in sentencing Bateson. In a 2018 Esquire article about New York County clerk's office could not find a copy of the trial transcript. Well, hold on. Oh, I just skipped the whole line. In a 2018 Esquire article about Bateson, writer Matt Miller, Miller was unable to find what that evidence might have been as New York County's, cl- County's Court clerk's office could not find a copy of the trial transcript, but nothing Miller had been able to review mentioned either the bags reportedly being traced to NYUMC or any mention of the deal offered to Bateson if he confessed to the other murders. So how would they lose Bates. a fucking transcript? Uh, that's the weird. The The Exorcist cursed. Oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> Bateson ultimately served twenty four years and three months of his sentence, becoming eligible for parole in nineteen. 19- 97 on the day after his 63rd birthday in August 2003 he was released from Arthur Kill Correction Facility on Staten Island According to online records kept by the state's Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, his parole was successfully completed in November 2008. That was the last public record of Bateson's available as of 2021. Where he is living, or even if he is alive, is not known. Miller attempted to contact Bateson for his Esquire article in 2018 at his last known address in the Long Island village of Freeport, but was unsuccessful as the phone had been disconnected. Emails to different addresses either bounced or were not answered. In his podcast interview around the same time, Freakham said that he had heard Bateson was living somewhere in upstate New York. A record in the Social Security Death Index shows that a Paul F. Bateson with the same birth date and a Social Security number issued in Pennsylvania died on September fifteenth, two 2012. So media portrayals. Bateson was portrayed by Morgan Kelly in the second season of the Netflix series Mindhunter. I don't recall him, him like having him being an episode but damn that was a good show and damn you netflix for canceling it yeah i gotta go back to that so good i gotta rewatch it yeah so that is our uh movie curse of the exorcist
0: crazy shit stuff yeah. burning down people's backs being broken it, it there's, there's bodies sh- being put in bags and thrown in the hudson so much to cover with that
1: holy yeah. shit Yeah, i wonder if um We will get any uh, curses on the next one. The only curses is being made by Blumhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, the
0: original was just so good that they can't fuck it up. Well, and and it's not going to be a
1: reboot, it's a a follow up. So, so. (sighs) we'll see. Blumhouse. So, I think uh, Blumhouse is like trying to get their teeth into every franchise. Next thing you know, I bet you I'm calling it now. Coming 2024 from Blumhouse Pictures, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Nah, I'm good. all right. (laughs) All right. So don't hang up
0: right away. I got an idea. I'm going to wrap this up. You got anything else? That's it. All right, guys. This has been our movie curses about the exorcist. Look them all up yourself, too. They're crazy-ass stories. This has been the Horror Shed Podcast. We will see you next Monday. Goodbye.
1: Halloween Homes 365 Productions